this week, and uh, certainly the worship this morning, I don't know about for you, but for me, was a, was a healing ointment over my soul. And I wanted to open with a prayer in those regards, and um, I'm going to read a prayer. It's not my prayer. It's a prayer that Ravi Zacharias offered up. This was sent to me by the Beaudry family this Friday, and I just couldn't help but um, be ministered by it, and I thought it would minister to us as a congregation. Maybe some of you have heard it already, but let me read this as our prayer to our God this morning in the context of what our nation has suffered this week. As we mourn this week's tragic events in Louisiana, Minnesota, and Dallas, it's evident that we need God now more than ever. This is my prayer on this day of shock and heartbreak. God, our Heavenly Father, our minds go back to the day when Jesus knelt beside his beloved city and wept, as is recorded in Luke chapter 19. We sense so deeply the same reality. We weep for our cities, even as we bury our dead. The sound of gunfire is grim, sound of what has already shattered our relationships. We are witnesses of distrust, revenge, and anger. We see no one to lead us and guide us. To whom shall we go? Our differences seem to lead us even further apart. O Lord of miracles, do what only you can do to save us from ourselves. Give us men and women who will lead us to reconciliation. Give us leaders who will bind us up and heal our wounds, not those who will only incite more hate. Give us voices that will bring hope and not despair. Please comfort the bereaved and give humility to the ones who are resistant to your ways. Give us pause so that we might sit back for just a few moments to look to you before we look at our own impulsive solutions. We shed another's blood when we are without answers. You shed your own blood as our only answer. We kill, buried in despair. You rise up, giving us hope. You told Peter to put back his sword, and you restored the wounded. That is what we long for, a reprimand to the one who would injure and a healing within to the injured one. God of miracles, please do it again. We need you. Our nation needs you. Our leaders need you. Many a home today will not have a loved one returning to them. Without you, Lord, we have no hope. With you, all things are possible even for beauty to come out of ashes. We pray for the day of unarmed truth and unconditional love. Please, Lord, answer our prayers. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our only Savior, we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, as we continue our study here this morning, going through this great epistle. You know, this epistle is not unlike any other of Paul's epistles where he spends about a half of the letter talking about great doctrinal truth. 
And then he spends the second half of the letter talking about very practical applications. And here we are this morning at the point where we enter into this practical application of the truths that we've been learning for the last several weeks. I've titled this message, A Brand New Wardrobe, because I believe it's kind of the metaphor that Paul is talking about here as he encourages us to get dressed, if you will, in the things of Christ. Now, there's three processes to this dressing event. First is we need to know what we're dressing for. We need to read the invitation. What is the event that we are being dressed for? What is the proper attire for what we're about to participate in? Once we understand that, then number two is we need to get undressed. We need to strip off. Before putting on anything, there is a putting off, a stripping down, and we'll talk a great deal about that. It's involved when we come from a life that has marred us and contaminated us with sin. And then we need to put on. We need to get dressed. And I think these first 17 verses of of chapter 3 here kind of flow in that vein. They kind of explain that process for us. So let's look at this in chunks here as we begin. We'll read verses, uh, looking at the invitation, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at this invitation. What are we dressing for? Paul says here that if then, or you could translate that very clearly, so that because of you were raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Wow. What is Paul talking about here? What are we dressing for? Well, I think when we look at at the end of the story, if we roll the clock ahead, there is an event that we're dressing for that the Bible refers to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think that event in itself really sets the standard for how we should address and the attitude that we should have as we put on the things of Christ. Let's look at that just real quickly. I I can turn there. You can join me if you want. It's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. That's you and me. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And to her it was granted to be arrayed, listen, in fine linen, clean and bright, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Wow, a future event. An event, but which one is that you and I are invited to with Christ. 
And we need to be dressed. We need to get ready for this. We don't know when this event occurs. And we need to be dressed and ready to participate in it. To have this view of where we're going, this changes everything about the way we live life. Everything. And Paul in his letter, quite often, he'll give what I'll call a vista view. In other words, every once in a while, and if you've ever, if you've ever hiked up in the mountains, hikers will talk to other hikers about the trail that they're, if you're going up the mountain, hikers are coming down the mountain, and there's always a little bit of conversation. What lies ahead? What should I look for? Are there any dangers? Are there any vistas? And vistas are a point where the trees kind of open up a little bit, maybe a point where you could walk out to a ridge and, and start to get a little bit of a view of the valley that's down below you. And Paul does that so often as he talks to us and gives us glimpses of heaven. But here in Colossians chapter 3, this is more than what a hiker would call a vista. This is a panorama. This is a panoramic view. It is a 360-degree view of the glory of God and all that is taking place in heaven, the place where we have been given a citizenship through the, Christ, through the cross of Jesus Christ. This great panorama reminds me of a, of a place up in New Hampshire. I don't know if anybody's ever been to Franconia Notch. Now, Franconia Notch, there's actually an interstate that passes through that notch now. It's where the old man of the mountain used to be till he fell off the mountain about 10 years ago and changed the tourist industry in this little valley because people would come just to see this rock face. But down in that valley, there's a little bit of everything for the summer tourist. There's miniature golf, there's go-kart racing, there's heated swimming pools, and there's KOA campgrounds. There's anything you could want. There's ice cream stands, you name it. It's there. But up above Franconia Notch is a trail called the Franconia Ridge. And it's a spectacular trail. It goes through the White Mountains. And there's, in a series of, of a really vigorous one-day hike, you can go across four 4,000-foot mountains. Two of them are over 5,000 feet. And relative to the valley below, it's a good two to 3,000 feet overview. And the thing that's really cool is you hike this trail... You get up around 4,000 feet and you get into what they call an alpine zone where all the vegetation is very small and some places it's nothing but rocks because the mountains have been swept clean of topsoil by the glaciers years ago. And when you're walking on this trail from one 4,000 foot mountain to the next, you literally have a 360 degree panoramic view around you. If it's clear, you can see uh, Mount Washington to the east, and you can see the Adirondack Mountains to the west, and you can see anything in between. It's spectacular. It's unbelievable. It's a heavenly view. And down below are the people in the ice cream stands, the miniature golf courses, the, uh, the, the go-kart stands, and, and the heated swimming pools. And listen, that's cool. I like those things too. But I'll tell you what, it doesn't compare to the view that you get from the top. It doesn't compare to the view that you get up on that ridge trail, that panoramic view. It just doesn't compare. But you know what the difference is? It takes work to get up there. There'll be 10,000, 15,000 people down in that valley. And on the very best weather, there might be three or 400 people that'll climb that trail. But it's not a trail that's easily climbed. It requires work. It requires time. It requires effort. But oh, the view is amazing from up there. And it changes your perspective of everything. The message 
translation. But Eugene Peterson says this of these same verses. Listen to this. I think it, it really helps us understand what Paul's trying to get across. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things that are right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. We need to have the right view. We need to understand what we're getting dressed for. And then once we have that view, then we need to begin the stripping off process. And this can take some time. This can take some effort too. This is involved. Verses 5 through 11 here. It says, therefore, put to death, or literally strip off, your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked. Now remember, this is a letter to the church. This is a letter to us. This is a letter to me. Among which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. See, before dressing in this wedding wardrobe, we of course need to get out of the old, filthy, ill-fitting, ragged clothes. Clothes, if you will, that have become contaminated. Contaminated. Now, I can, I can relate to this in more ways than one. For, for 20 years of my life, I worked in the nuclear power industry. Some of that was in the United States Navy nuclear power industry, and then right out of the Navy into commercial nuclear power. And my first job getting out of the Navy was a job called a radiation protection technician. And the whole job, I was responsible really for two things. Making sure that a person's job, a mechanic or a plant operator, electrician, whoever, who was working in the reactor plant, that their radiation exposure was kept to an absolute minimum. And then I also was responsible for making sure that their body, both their exterior, their skin, and their internal, their lungs and their, their digestive system, did not become contaminated with radioactive material. See, because working in a nuclear power plant is just like working in any other power plant. A mechanic gets dirty doing his work. The difference is, in a regular power plant, the dirt is not radioactive. In a nuclear power plant, it very well could be. And depending on where they were working, what their job was, I was required to specify certain levels of protective clothing. Some of that might be as simple as a pair of cotton liners and rubber gloves, and then cotton shoe covers and rubber shoe covers. And they would go in, they'd do a simple task, they'd come out, they'd strip off those, those rubber gloves, they'd dispose of them as radioactive material, and they would go on. Sometimes they would have to go in, they'd have to put cotton coveralls over, over that first. And then those gloves. Sometimes it was two sets of cotton coveralls. Sometimes it was two sets of cotton coveralls. And then a plastic waterproof suit. And then a hood. And then a respirator. And then the rubber gloves. And another set of rubber gloves over. You get the picture. 
depending on how contaminated the area was that they were working in. And then when you come out of those zones, if you're dressed in those multiple layers, there was actually multiple zones for stripping down, the process of getting cleaned up and making sure that you're not bringing any of that radioactive material outside into an area that is clean. And Paul says that you have been working in a highly contaminated area. And you need to strip off all that contamination that has come upon you. And you need to leave it aside and enter into a place where I have made you clean. Paul addresses some of the dirty work here in verse 5. This is the things that earlier on in, in Ephesians, he says there's sins among you among which we don't even discuss. Here he actually names those sins. Back in April, I, I gave a talk on Ephesians chapter 5, and I talked in great deal of, about a lot of these sins and how we need to challenge ourselves in living in holiness. You can go back and glean from that if you'd like or review it. Here, these are all sins, and, and to sum them up, these sins, look at this line here, verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. The idea of the wrath of God terrifies me. But there's a beauty here in this line that I don't want you to miss. Why do these bring the wrath of God? These sins, all sexual sin, all, all sexual in nature... All of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the living out of, of unnatural things and, and extreme desires, things outside, way outside of what God designed or created for us. Why do they bring the wrath of God? The reason why they bring the wrath of God is because they are at war. These sins are at war with the thing that God loves the most, and that's you and your soul, and your relationship with him. These sins are at war with that. And he loves you. And he will bring his wrath to defeat them. And that's why we need to take these sins, and we need to take them to the place where the wrath of God was poured out once and for all for you and for me, the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God poured out on that cross on his own innocent son bearing his wrath to set us free. To set us free. To set us free from these things. This is a loving God. Even in his wrath, his wrath is all about his love for you and I. And our victory comes when we take these sins to that place where the wrath was poured out. The God of the universe went to war for you. He went to war for me, and he was victorious there. And I'll just say one more thing about this. You know, so much of this, if you look at this word fornication translated here in verse 2 uh, of this uh, New King James 
translation. That is the, the root word. We talked about it before back in April. This is the word of pornea, where we get our word pornography. And again, I just have to say it. This is an area where Satan is just waging guerrilla warfare on the church. And, and I'm going to speak, it's not just the guys, but I'm going to speak to the guys here this morning. Guys, if you're struggling in this area, please know that there is a group of men that have stepped forward and said, yeah, that's me. I struggle in that area. And they meet here every Thursday night. They come out because they want to bring these sins to that cross where the wrath of God came to destroy them. If that's you, be a man and come out and deal with this for the sake of your relationship with Christ, the relationship of those with you that you love. The second layer of peeling off, that's, that's, man, that's when we're way, way, way deep, those first few verses there, when we're way inside this nuclear power plant and it's highly contaminated, we come out, we strip all that stuff off. And then we come to the next layer, but we're still working in a contaminated area. We still need to get rid of this second layer. Verses 8 and 9, but you, now you yourselves are to put off all these things. And then he goes through another list, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie. He's talking to the church again. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So there's still this stripping out. That first set of sins, yeah, it's easy. We're outraged when we learn of someone involved in adultery or involved in some type of sexual sin. We're all outraged by it. And we ought to be. I agree. But all too often we'll overlook or we'll turn the other way when someone within the church, maybe a church leader even, someone who speaks harshly to a brother or somebody that that uses language that's, that's diminishing to another human being, exercising power un, unjustly, somebody who harbors bitterness or resentment towards a brother or sister in the church, someone that speaks things that are maybe exaggerated or mistruths or framed up a certain way that are lies. The Bible's calling them lies. Paul makes it clear. These things have to come off. They have to come off. They have to be stripped off. And then the last thing that needs to be stripped off here is anything that has division, anything that has separation, anything that segregates, the final layer of contamination that must be stripped off, and how appropriate that is for us this week as we look at the events in our nation. Paul says here, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. There's neither barbarian nor Scythian. There's neither slave nor free. In Galatians chapter 3, he would say that there's neither male nor female. The one thing there is, is Christ. We shouldn't see male and female. We shouldn't see different religious 
backgrounds. We shouldn't see different ethnic backgrounds. We shouldn't see different racial backgrounds. All we should see in each other in the church is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He is all and in all. That should be all that we see. And the only way that we can see that is to see with his eyes. Lord, would you give me your eyes to see? Lord, help me see with your eyes, Jesus. Help me see somebody as redeemed as you see them. Break my heart, as we sang this morning, break my heart for what breaks yours, Lord. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And I love to be a part of this church. This local manifestation of this church. I think we do well in this. And I'd like to see us continue to set the standard for this among the church of Jesus Christ. But those deep-rooted ugliness, that sin, that contamination, it's in my heart. I look at the events that, that I've watched this week, that we've all witnessed this week, and i got to say, it's only through Christ that that sinfulness in my heart can be stripped off. Because in the flesh, right away, I start to see Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. I start to see it in the flesh. I constantly need to strip it out, taking it to the cross that leveled the ground for all humanity. Calvary became level at the foot of the cross for all humanity. Now, once we've stripped all of these things out, stripped them off, been made clean, removed all the contamination, now it's time to get dressed. Beginning in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Here we go. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another... Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul here describes an entire ensemble of clothing. That is one that is of the highest quality. It's of the very finest materials. It's perfectly tailored. No expense spared. Have you ever had an outfit like that? Maybe, maybe some of the 
brides in the room, maybe they're the only ones that have maybe had that experience. Maybe they had the privilege of, of having that custom-fitted and created wedding dress and, and all, the, all the pampering that went along with that experience. Most guys have never had that experience. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you live in that world. Maybe some of you, because of your work, it requires that type of dress. Maybe you have your own custom tailor. I don't know. This is a set of clothing, boy, that's beyond anything I can imagine. My father-in-law loved clothes. Fortunately, we were about the same size. I loved his hand-me-downs. Still have a couple that I wear to this day. And I remember one time I was, I had, you know, when I was in the, in the workforce and entered into the workforce, very blue-collar technician working in the union and, and came up where I got promoted to supervise that union. And I remember my boss offered me a, 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 a promotion. You know, he said, Steve, you got the job that you were trying for. And I remember challenging him to this. Um, never had anybody ask me this before. He goes, what do you think your raise should be? And I, I said, I'm going to go for broke, you know. <laughs> and I gave him a number, and he said, you got it. He goes, but, he goes, when you come in on Monday, I expect you to be wearing a tie. I'm like, what? <laughs> Never worn a tie in my life. But he met my challenge, so I had to meet his. And I remember going out with Kristen's dad. We, had, we, we went down to visit. We were in Northern California, drove down. They lived in Southern California, Orange County, south of L.A. And um, I said, I, his name was Huffaker. I called him Huff. I said, Huff, would you take me shopping? He goes, I'd love to. You know, we went out and bought some clothes. He helped me a lot. I, I just enjoyed that time. We were shopping in a, in a place called South Coast Plaza in, in uh, Orange County. It's one of the wealthiest malls I've ever been in. Now, you can go into like a Boscov's and a Macy's there, and that's where I did pennies. I, that's where I did my shopping. But we're walking through the mall, and there are clothes stores in there that I would never shop in because I just simply can't afford to. And I remember walking past this, this window one time with him, and this shirt caught my eye. And I was looking, I'm like, man, that's a good looking shirt, isn't it, Hoff? He says, it sure is. He says, you should go in and check it out. I went in, and I'm looking at the shirt, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, you, you, if you have to ask how much it costs, you probably can't afford it. I had to ask how much it cost, and I could not afford it. it was that one shirt was probably more than I had spent on a wardrobe for the last couple years. So I came out, and, and, and my father-in-law said, did you like it? I said, I liked it a lot. I just don't think it's going to fit me well, <laughs> meaning my pocketbook. Christ spares no expense. No expense for the clothing of righteousness that cost him his life on the cross. And notice, that he, notice that this list, what does all... Every one of these things in this list, what do they deal with? Would they deal with what is absolutely most important to him, and that is our relationships with one another. His clothes of righteousness help us to love one another. This is a beautiful ensemble of relationships that he puts together 
And then there's one final article of clothing. For a guy, it's probably that perfect blue blazer that goes with anything, right? Got to have one. Ladies, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's an accessory. You know, maybe it's a pocketbook or a scarf or, or something. I don't know what it is. I don't live in that world. But it's perfect. Whatever it is, it's perfect. You can wear it with any outfit, wear it for any occasion. It just covers everything up. It makes you look like a million bucks. What is it? It's the garment of love. Above all, put on love. This completes the outfit. Paul, in another letter, would say, put on Christ. He's saying the same thing. Put on love. The bond of unity, the perfect bond of unity. Paul's words here echoing his words to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he defines love. Those verses inscribed on my wedding band as a reminder for me. Matter of fact, those verses in 1 Corinthians 13 probably used more often in a, in a wedding celebration than any other. These verses right here may be number two used in a wedding celebration. And I'd love to sometime in a wedding celebration as a pastor to do an exegetical study of these words right in front of the bride and, bride and groom. Say, okay, let's talk about this. Long-suffering. Bearing with one another. Are you ready? <laughs> I know that you think you love each other more than any two people have ever loved each other, but let's talk about the bearing with one another. And I'm so thankful that my wife has bared with a sinful, miserable, selfish man for 32 years. Because that's what it takes. Bearing. You have a complaint, letting it go. Above all, putting on this perfect bond of love. What a beautiful ensemble he's given us. You know, I don't know what your favorite designer label is. Nike, Tommy Hilfiger, Coach Handbag. If I was a girl, I'd probably like those. Michael Kors, Ralph Lauren. I don't know what it is. We all are kind of suckered into it one way or another, even if we don't want to. But there is a designer label that we all wear. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus. There it is. If you're a follower of Christ, you bear his label. Everywhere you go, you are advertising for him. You're an agent of his. Nike pays LeBron James $30 million a year. Lifetime contract. Lifetime contract to wear Nike, to sponsor Nike, plus a proceed of the shoes that he sells. Lionel Messi's paid $140 million for seven years as a soccer player to wear Adidas apparel. UCLA, if you're an athlete at UCLA, over the next 
15 years, you're going to be wearing Under Armour because Under Armour paid UCLA $280 million, over a quarter billion dollars to wear their label. All that's nothing. Nothing. When you think of the cost paid by God to put the label of Jesus Christ on you, we need to wear that label. A label of love in a world that needs it now as much as it ever has, maybe even more. Would you wear his label this week? Father, we thank you. Lord,